0: You're listening to the Formation Church podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the Ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Uh, this is a series that we have called "Our Father." And just to recap, uh, in case you weren't here last week and haven't had an opportunity to listen to the podcast yet, uh, we started with what Jesus highlights in Matthew chapter 6 as the heart of prayer. And the way that Jesus gets at the heart of prayer in these opening verses is by sharing three what we called faulty reasons to pray, so three reasons that we don't pray. So we don't pray, we learned, for human praise, which was very common in Jesus' day. We don't pray in order to manipulate God and to get him to do what we want him to do. And we don't ever pray to inform God because he's all-knowing. So he already knows what we need, Jesus says, before we even ask. Instead, Jesus teaches us that prayer is primarily the path to relationship with our perfect Father. And so one of the biggest mental shifts that we have to make when it comes to prayer, which is very challenging for many of us, is we need to begin to move away from prayer as a means of simply getting God to do the things that we want Him to do and to move toward prayer as a means of going deeper into relationship with Him. And those two things are super different. It's the difference between a relationship with a person and a vending machine. And Jesus is not this cosmic vending machine that we put our prayers into and then He is obligated to dispense to us whatever we demand. Jesus is a person who desires relationship with us. And so this is going to now bring us to the prayer itself. So if you have a Bible or a mobile app that you like to read on, uh, I want to invite you to turn back to Matthew 6. If you don't have a, a Bible with you this morning, all the scripture will be on the screen, so you don't need to worry about that. This morning we're going to specifically look at verse 9, and I want to call this message the hope of prayer. But first, uh, as we're going to do every week throughout this series, I want to invite you to actually pray this prayer with me. So all of the verses of the Lord's Prayer are going to be on the screen, and let's in one loud collective voice read this prayer together, all right? Go ahead and put that up. Let's read this together. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we're going to focus our attention this morning on that first petition in verse 9. So notice that Jesus says again in verse 9, <clears throat> therefore, which is a really important word. Anytime you come across, you ever just drop into the text? and the first word you read is, therefore, a signal should go off on your brain where you're like, I should probably back up, because this is pretty important to what came before. So what Jesus is saying is, as a result of the heart behind prayer, instead of these faulty ways to pray, here's how you should pray. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Now the first Point of note is that opening phrase where Jesus says, you should pray like this. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say that we are bound by these specific words alone. He says, pray like this. He doesn't say, pray only this. He doesn't even say, pray specifically this. He says, pray like this. And so what he's saying in that is that these points are good and healthy for our prayer times to touch. These are the types of things that we would do well to pray. Leon Morris calls this the model prayer to guide disciples in their devotional lives. And so I would argue, though, that even though we are not bound by these specific words alone, meaning that even though Jesus intends this to be an example or a model of prayer for us, I would argue that we should not be too quick to discard the the specific words in favor of praying however we want. And here's why. And I would say this is especially true for those of us that don't feel very equipped or adept or educated and experienced in the area of prayer. If you're newer to faith, I think that we should be very, very slow to discard these specific words. And again, here's why. My first steps into ministry, for those of you that don't know, actually came through music and not through teaching. And so when I was 17 years old, I started learning to play guitar. And eventually, with time and a few years, I became a worship And music pastor. And prior to that, I got to write and to record two EPs and two full length albums as well. And I I know what you're thinking, and I just want you to know no, okay? You're never gonna hear them. (laughs) Because by God's grace, this all happened pre streaming. And I think there is one copy that exists on CD, and it belongs to my wife. And I think it will not be good for our marriage if that sees the light of day, okay? So it's not gonna happen, all joking aside. Like every musician who's ever learned to play an instrument or learn to write songs, I didn't start by just picking up my dad's old Martin guitar and then on day 1 proceeding to write my own songs. I've never maybe Taylor Swift did that. That might be the only person. That was that's not most people's story. I started by doing what most people do, which is spending a couple of years learning to play other people's songs. And so with enough time invested in learning other people's songs, learning about structure, learning about chording, learning about voicing and tone, after investing the time to learn all that, then I was able to branch out and begin to learn to write my own. And I would argue that this prayer offers us the exact same thing. By reflecting on and praying the specific words of Jesus here, we then learn to pray our own. So I would definitely commend you to memorize this prayer if you have not already, to even recite it through your daily life for the purpose of meditation because with time, it does inform how we then learn to communicate with God. And here's what's so amazing about this prayer. Through just 56 words, which is all it is in this translation, and six simple petitions, Jesus covers the entirety of life. I don't believe that there is a single experience in life that you cannot somehow find and tie into one of these six petitions that he gives us here. There's an author by the name of Daryl Johnson who says this, name any need, any concern, any longing, and it is covered by Jesus' prayer. Nothing is left out, nothing too big, nothing too small. So on the surface, this prayer seems very, very simple. Like you could probably legitimately memorize this prayer in less than 10 minutes. But the longer that you sit with it, the more depth you discover. And I would say that this is also reflective of the practice of prayer itself because prayer is deceptively simple. If you can communicate, you can pray. But prayer is also infinitely deep. We never plumb the full depths of it. And so what I want to invite you to do, not just this morning, but really throughout the rest of this series, is to to do your best to try and suspend what you think you know about prayer. And instead... Seek to bring fresh eyes and fresh ears to Jesus' words here. And so to that end, each week, we are going to ask and answer three simple questions. We are going to ask the question first, number one, what does this say about God? Which I would argue is the most important question, because he is the one that we are communicating with. So it is critical that we understand who he is and what he's like. So we will ask, what does this say about God? Secondly, we will ask, what does this say about us? Because we learn something about our own identity, our own position, our own posture in relationship with him. And then finally, how might we more faithfully pray like this? So those are the three questions. So listen again to this first petition from Jesus. He says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. So what do these words tell us about God? Well, the first and the most significant truth that we learn about God is that he is our what? Father, good job. That was, I got real nervous there for a split second. Much has been made about Jesus' decision to teach us to pray to God as our father. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Jesus goes so far as to use this Hebrew word, Abba. Now, if you don't know, that was a very intimate and personal name probably most closely associated with titles in our own culture like Papa or Daddy. And so the truth is, this was a far more intimate way to talk to God than what was normative. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus not only invites us to see God through this intimate lens, but also through the lens of his transcendence. Because he is our Father in heaven. He isn't just some cuddly, comforting presence. Right now, God, our Father, sits enthroned, reigning over this world and over our lives. So he is both intimate and infinite. He is imminent and he is transcendent. It is both. And so the fact that this was a more intimate way to approach God than what was normative in their day is very, very true. What isn't true is, is that Jesus was presenting an entirely new understanding of the nature of God, as some have claimed, and I've read many, many commentaries and books where oh, well, Jesus was revolutionizing revolutionizing people's perspective of God. That's not entirely true. N.T. Wright points out that the first time that God is actually identified as Father happens all the way back in Exodus chapter four, which, if you don't know, is like the second book of the Bible. So. This is not the first time that God is referred to as father. It actually happens all the way back in Exodus 4, to 23. When God sent Moses to liberate the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he told Moses to address Pharaoh saying these words, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. That's pretty profound. If you think about the situation that Israel is in when God speaks those words to Moses, despite the fact that Israel would have understandably and rightfully seen themselves as slaves, remember at this point, they have been in slavery as a nation for 400 years. Four, five, maybe six generations of the nation of Israel had lived enslaved to the people of Israel. But despite the fact that they see themselves as slaves, God raises his voice and he says, no, 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 no. these are my sons and my daughters. God was their father then. And the fact that God was their father meant a lot more than just comfort and encouragement for them in the midst of slavery. It also meant impending freedom and liberation. As their father, he was going to liberate them from slavery. He was going to set them free. And so here's the connection that is often lost on us, but I promise you would not have been lost on those first disciples when Jesus was teaching this prayer. When Jesus tells them to pray, our Father in heaven, they would have heard the promise of a new exodus because they knew their history very, very well. Remember, being slaves in Egypt for 400 years, that was like one of the most defining experiences in the history of the nation of Israel. Every single young or old Jewish boy or girl, man or woman, everybody knew the story of the Exodus. They were familiar with this language of God saying, I'm going to liberate my sons and my daughters. So when Jesus says, you should pray, our father, they're going, oh my gosh, this sounds like Exodus language. And so N.T. Wright says that this prayer Didn't just mean, quote, intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. And this would have been hope. This hope would have been so timely because their national hope in the first century had certainly slipped away. If you're not familiar with Israel's history, just a few generations after being slaves in Egypt, Israel goes right back into exile. Then, after 70 years of exile, they're released. But then just a few generations later, they find themselves here in the first century, occupied by Rome. So just imagine being Jesus' first disciples, and you're listening to this prayer. You could have been reflecting on your history thinking, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Syria, and now Rome. Are we ever going to be truly free? And so then when Jesus opens his mouth and he says, I want you to draw in close and I want you to learn to pray like this. Our Father in heaven. What they would have heard is an invitation to dare to hope for freedom again. And when we pray our Father, it should be a signal that we are invited to the hope of freedom too. When we lift our voices in prayer and we say, Father God, we should be filled with a sense of hope that Jesus wants to free us from our wounds, that he wants to free us from the bondage of destructive behavior, that he wants to free us from and to life lived in a new way that leads to our flourishing. And so when we pray our Father, we are praying our Father who gives us hope of better days to come. All of that is bound up in this simple two-letter petition, our Father. Now, additionally, Jesus says that we should pray that the Father would see to it that his name is honored as holy. Now, if you're familiar with the old language, I joked a little bit about this in Q&A last week, then the way that you learn to pray this was, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And no one knows what hallowed means, so we don't use that, that word anymore. And what it really means is exactly what it says right here, that God's name would be honored as holy. Now, here's the thing. The notion of one's name meant far more in their culture than it does in ours. Our names, in in our experience, are for personal designation alone. But in their culture, one's name was bound up in who they were as a person. It designated their character, their nature, their personality, and their reputation. And so to see the Father's name honored as holy means seeing to it that we would hold it in its proper reverence. So we're not asking that God would be holy because he's already holy. Instead, we are praying, Lord, help us and help the world to respond to you as the holy and the perfect Father that you truly are. And so more than anything else, this teaches us that God is our perfect Father of hope. And that means safety for us, it means comfort, it means provision, it means protection, and it means care. It means that an intimate and close relationship is offered to us, but it also fills us with hope because it reminds us that the Father is bringing true freedom to our lives and he will bring true freedom to this world. But that's not all. These words also teach us something about us. So first, it teaches us that we belong to him. He is our Father, and we are His children. And I want you to feel both the comfort and the tension in that. There's comfort because we're not alone. We belong to Him. He is our Father. We are His children. And so even if the people in our lives, which we have probably all experienced this to some degree, even when people in our lives abandon us or reject us, we aren't alone. We belong to Him. And so there is tremendous comfort in that, but there's also tension because it reminds us that we're not our own, that we are created by him, and as a result of that, that we belong to him, So we don't exist to serve our own selfish desires. We exist to serve his good purpose in this world. So the fact that God is our Father teaches us that we belong to him. And secondly, we have to notice that this prayer starts, and this is Easy for us to just skip over. Notice how it starts with the plural word, our. That simple plural pronoun links the praying person with other followers of Jesus. Now, that might seem very, very small, but it's a necessary reminder. You know that according to a decades-long research project, America is the most individualistic culture on earth right now. That's our big claim to fame. We're doing great. America. So whereas other cultures might prioritize the tribe or might prioritize the family or the community, we prioritize the individual. So what matters most is the pursuit and the attainment of your dreams and your happiness. Now the problem with cultural traits like this is that we tend not to even notice what's normative, meaning a fish doesn't know it's wet because it's never experienced anything else. And culture has that same effect on us. Like you might have even just heard what I said and be like, well, yeah, but what's what's the problem with that? We're Americans. Like our whole thing is like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I would go, yes, it is. And that's a problem. And we need to see that. Which is a reason why the Bible is such a gift to us. Because it helps us check what is culturally normative with how God says he has designed us to flourish. And I want to continue. I, I, some people, I don't, I don't know if any of these people go to our church anymore. I think they've all left. But I've had some criticism over the last few years of like, how come you just are derogatory about America? And I'm like, well, first of all, let me just say, I love our country. I love being an American. And I love freedom. And I hate to break it to you, but there is a lot that is immensely and deeply broken about the country in which we live. America is not the kingdom of God. America is not the new Israel. America is a country that God has put us in and it has problems and it is one of the prophetic responsibilities of the people of God to lift their voice and speak up about it. And one of the problems present in our culture is that we are so highly individualistic. All that matters is me and my freedom. It's all that matters. And according to Jesus, that is not true. And so from these just very simple words, like this one little word, our, we are reminded that faith is meant to be communal. And we don't do communal very well in our culture, but our faith is meant to be communal. It is personal, but you need to hear this, your faith is not meant to be private, It's meant to be communal. The Bible has no category for life as a Christian apart from community in the local church. And we need to understand, life is not just about you. Life is about us. What matters is not just what's best for you. What matters is what's best for us. And that is implied when we pray our Father. He's not just mine. He's not just yours. He is our Father. So, the big question is, are we okay? (laughs) Anytime I mention America, I just feel like, we get a little tight in here. Loosen up, okay? It's going to be okay. Now, the big question is, how might we more faithfully pray like this? Because it doesn't really matter if we understand the words if we don't actually follow the example to which Jesus invites. So how do we begin to faithfully pray like this? So to start, we have to be really honest about where we don't have the proper attitude toward God. Meaning, we have to allow God, and this is so important, especially right here, because the moment many of us hear the word Father, wounds surface, and pain surfaces. Because for many of us, the idea and the experience of a father was not safe. It was not a place of comfort. It was not a place of care. For some of us, it wasn't even a place of presence, meaning we didn't even have one there. And so this is a complicated and loaded word. And so we have to learn to allow God, not our experience, to define father. It is our natural tendency to project our experience with an earthly father, on to God. And not just a father, but a father, a mother, a primary caregiver. We take whatever that experience was, and we go, okay, God is our father. This is what my parental experience was like. This is what God's like. And that is a broken way for us to come at God. Every time I look up at these lights, I go blind for like 30 seconds, and I can't find my notes again. Give me a sec. There's a pastor and an author, if you're not familiar with, his name is Louis Giglio, And he just wrote a beautiful new book called Seeing God as Perfect Father. And I would highly recommend it to you, especially if you are aware of some father woundedness in your own life. But in this book, he highlights a bunch of common views, faulty views, broken views that are normative in in all of our lives. I think he highlights 10 or 12. And just for the sake of time, I just want to point out five very common views of God that we live with and that we have that, that, that are not helpful for us, that are inaccurate views of what the scriptures say God is actually like. And so these are all prohibitive to our relationship with him in general and our prayer lives in particular. So let's look at five common and broken views of God. The first one is what we might call scorekeeper God. Scorekeeper God. So this God, he's all about the do's and the don'ts. Go to church a point. Give someone the finger on the way to church, lose two points. <laughs> I hope those of you that are laughing, you're like, ha ha, I did that today. <laughs> so this God, listen, this God is always watching. He's always evaluating. He's always judging and working the numbers. So he's very karmic in that sense. And so at the end of your life, the goal is, I need to have more good than bad on his ledger. And I'm here to tell you, that's not God. Some of us have this view of a scorekeeper God. Others of us see an angry God. Now this God loves to push people around. This God loves to make people pay. Handing out punishments like his main thing. And make no mistake, this God does not like you very much. He is grumpy, he is petulant, and he is impossible to please. And so as a result, your best course of action is just to avoid him altogether. So walk on eggshells, keep your distance, try not to draw his attention. And again, that's not who God is. We don't have a scorekeeper God, and we don't follow an angry God. Some of us have this view that maybe we would call the me God. And so this God looks and sounds a lot like me. Now, of course, we don't walk away saying I'm God, although Ryder and I were in Venice Beach this week and we for sure saw some people that I think were so out of their minds they might think they're actually God. But that's not normative for most of us, but we do act like it. We act like it when we think things like, I call all the shots in my life. I'm in charge. I make the decisions. I'm in control. The world revolves around me, and I steer the ship of my destiny. No one will tell me what to do. That's just this me-God thing, and that's not who God is and what God's like. Many of us believe in what I have long called the buffet God. Now, this God is a mixture of all of the parts of all of these views that we like. So like you walk down the line of a buffet and you take what you like and you skip what you don't, that's the way a huge percentage of people relate with God. So this God, for me, is non-offensive, he's non-abrasive, and he's non-absolute, because again, I get to pick and choose whatever it is that I want. There's never a clear right or wrong, this God might be everything, God might be nothing, you might be God, I might be God, maybe we're all God, maybe there's no God. That's the me God and that is not the God of the Bible. And then finally, many people believe in what we might call the no God God. This would be the position of the atheist. And that image is hard to keep in mind because it's a non-image. It's an image that one is trying to erase from their mind. So you don't believe in God because you don't believe there's a God in which to believe. But we need to still see and understand that that's still a view of God that informs one's response to him. Now, what all of these views have in common, every single one of them, is that they are contrary to the God that is conveyed in Scripture. They're all contrary to who Scripture says God is. And that matters because your image of God will inform how you relate with him in general and how you pray to him in particular. And that's why prayer is inseparable from From Scripture, one of the many goals for his word is that it would uh, form our view of him. And so rather than allow your experience with an earthly father or father figure or parental figure to be the lens through which you understand the character and nature of God, we need to instead allow God to be the lens through which we understand what a father is meant to be. And this is one of the primary reasons that I would argue that everyone would benefit from therapy, counseling, spiritual direction, something that helps us to go back and reflect on what our earliest experience with parental figures or caregivers actually is. Because I would argue, you might disagree, that's okay, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Nothing impacts your relationship with God like the relationship you had with your parents. Nothing. And you might disagree with that. But what I'd say is, and I could be wrong about this, but my guess is no one in this room has probably spent more time thinking about this both personally and professionally than me. I've been pastoring for 20 years and have been able to be in relationship with hundreds of people over the course of those 20 years. And over and over and over in relationship with them, and in my own experience, I have seen this to be true, nothing informs your relationship with God like the experience that you had in relationship with your parents. And if we've never taken the time and created the space to actually reflect on what that experience was, we don't understand the impact that it is having on our relationship with God right now. And it's uncomfortable for many of us because like me, many of you didn't have a perfect or awesome experience in that realm. And that can be really, really hard, but we have to see that it is impacting our relationship with God. Now, the good news in all of this is our big idea, which is this. As we learn to honor our Father as holy, meaning perfect, as we learn to actually honor God, as the perfect Father that He is, our hearts are filled with hope. Our hearts are filled with hope of freedom, hope of healing, and hope of better days ahead. And I'm not, I don't, I don't mean the better days, I don't don't mean that in the sense of like if I hear one more pastor say something dumb, like, the best is yet to come, I just swear I'm gonna leave the church. (laughs) I can't handle hearing that anymore because it's so flip, because you know what? Some people's lives don't get better in the way that we tend to mean that because what we tend, the subtext of that is, hey, there's a time coming, all your problems are gone. There is, and it's the day that Jesus returns and fixes this hot mess. Until then, the truth is there's some probably pretty difficult days ahead, and we have to normalize the struggle that it is to be a people of faith in a broken world. We have to normalize the experience of pain and suffering and difficulty as like, yeah, that's what it feels like to follow Jesus. It's freaking hard. And there is much broken in this world. And there are better days to come. That doesn't mean all the circumstances are going to get better, but better days in the sense of, a deeper experience of God's love and comfort and presence and acceptance, his welcome, and in the eternal sense, there is a day, the scriptures say, and we fight to believe by faith, when Jesus is going to fix everything that's wrong. And there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and that will be a great day. But today, at least this moment, is not that day. But, The more we learn to honor our Father as holy, the more our hearts fill with hope. And we need hope. And so this week, I want to invite you to ask God a question. You know that's a form of prayer? So I want you to ask God a question this week, and here's the question I want you to ask him. Where do I see your character and nature contrary to that of Scripture? Lord, what's a way, what are the ways that I perceive you differently than you actually are and and here's the thing we all have that you could be brand new to faith you could have been following jesus for decades you have some views of god that are inaccurate we all do and all we're asking the spirit to show us right now is what's what's a way right now that i see you differently than you are portrayed in scripture could be one of the views that we discussed today maybe one of those really resonates with you and you're like yeah i think i do that Maybe you've projected your experience with a father or a mother or a caregiver or another father, figure or spiritual leader in your. maybe you've projected what that person was like onto him. Maybe you feel something different than what Scripture says is true of him. Ask him to both show you and to help you bring your view in line with what's true. Because as we learn, to honor him as holy our hearts will fill with hope and we just won't survive in this world without that hope and so let's pray and let's ask that God would teach us to see him clearly father we we do thank you that you are holy that you are perfect and we might need to pray that by faith because we don't feel that to be true in this moment. But that's what your word says is true. You are holy. You are set apart. You are otherly. You are perfect. You never harm us. You never exploit us. You never take advantage of us. Instead, you provide for us. You protect us. You care for us. You love us. You accept us welcome us, you want us, you desire us, all of that is true of you. And I guess I just ask that you would help us to actually believe that. Because so much about what we've experienced makes it really hard for us to do so. Help us see you for who you truly are. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, and your presence with us. Help us to see you as holy. And would you fill our hearts with hope for the freedom that you promised to bring in our lives. In Jesus' name.